started. Just ask that uh, you close your eyes. And <clears throat> we are in uh, the Beatitudes, and we're going to kind of take apart um, just about each one um, per Sunday. I'll add. I'll combine a couple as we go along. But last week we looked at the Beatitudes as the threshold between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and that what the Ten Commandments are to the Old Covenant, the Beatitudes are to the New Covenant, and that when Christ came on the scene, he was coming into a world that was fixed in tradition, fixed in legalism, uh, fixed in a mindset, a rigid mindset of, of what it meant to be righteous, and that the Pharisees had all the answers to what righteousness meant, and they could check the list off at the end of the day, and if they got that checked off, they were righteous. So it was a, a righteousness based upon doing, a righteousness based upon legalism, a righteousness that uh, was based upon um, what became a burden that Christ called a burden grievous to be born, a burden that the Pharisees didn't enter into, but they placed it upon the people, uh, the Jewish people uh, of the church. And uh, they, they uh, specialized on whitewashing the sepulchers, and on the inside, they were, everything was messed up, but on the outside, everything looked great. And so when Jesus came onto the scene with the Beatitudes here with the Sermon on the Mount, he was literally turning the known world upside down. He was, he was slamming it up against uh, the wall of the Spirit. He was slamming it up against the ways of the true God. He was slamming it up against an interior journey, an interior place and making the shift. And so these words that he spoke here in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew were uh, alien to their concept and alien to their thinking. And, and as we look at this and as we go through these in the next weeks, they will actually sort of turn our mindset on its ear too because some of these things that Christ says here, even in the first chapter 5, are, are very difficult for us to get at because they seem impossible to do. And, and the good news is, and the bad news both is, that they are impossible to do. You know, the Old Covenant was about doing. The New Covenant is about being. The New Covenant is about letting God do in us what you and I cannot do. So when we get over to the last verses, the last 10 verses of uh, chapter 5, for, verses 38 through 48, and he says, turn the other cheek, and go the second mile. And if somebody asks of your coat, cloak, give them your coat also. And um, pray for those who uh, abuse you and love those who hate you. Um, you know, that goes against our fabric uh, as well. Um, we, we are cut out of the same old covenant cloth of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We just phrase it differently. We just call it give them their own medicine. I mean, that's, we're wired that way. Our human fabric is wired that way. It's not just Old Covenant. We do better in Old Covenant in the sense of just show me the rules. Show me what to do. Give me, you know, give me the equation. And if I'm a mind to, I'll do it. <laughs> With a few options here and there. Um, so, you know, the human, the human fabric of which we are made is very similar to the Old Covenant fabric in the sense that it's far easier for us to find some things to do and keep busy um, than it is for us to let 
God into the interior recesses of our soul and do his renovation work. Uh, but there is good news here too, and that is that uh, this um, Sermon on the Mount and the life of Christ are about an exchanged life, are about us learning how to let him come in and take over the controls of our life and do what we cannot do. Uh, he says in Matthew uh, 11, verse uh, 28, we'll go there for just a moment, uh, verses 28 through 30, Come unto me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. One of the purposes of the life of Christ among men and the life of Christ in us, incarnate in us, is to give us his peace, to give us his rest, to not let the, th the things that he speaks to us be a heavy burden. Uh, his desire is that we will find rest and peace in him, not an oppressive sense of rules and regulations. But that can only happen as we uh, consent to an exchange life, to letting his life come in and, uh, and us live by his spirit and live and walk in his spirit. And so he goes on there in verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I think the times where you and I may find his um, yoke to be difficult and his burden to be heavy, it's because we are trying to carry what we're not designed to carry, and we're not letting him have it. And so much of the Christian journey that you and I are on is, is finding that balance between doing what we can do and then letting God do what we cannot. But that's the whole essence of the partnership between us in Christ, is that we do what we can do. If we can step forward toward the Red Sea or step toward, uh, forward toward the impossible, that's what we are to do. But we cannot open what is not possible for us to open. We cannot part what is not possible for man to part. That's God's business. And us understanding and learning the difference between the two is, um, is critical, and it's key. It's key to the kingdom. And so we start today in verse 3 of chapter 5 of Matthew looking at this particular key of the kingdom. By the way, is it warm in here to any of y'all? Okay. Do you mind turning that down to about maybe 74 or 73? Once it gets going, it'll cool off really fast. Thanks, Gay. Uh, blessed, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we are looking here at, uh, you know, God's ways are paradox uh, to man's ways. If we want to secure a kingdom, what do we do? We go and fight for it. We declare war upon that kingdom and we go get it whatever it is. So this is why I said, you know, his ways are not, are not conducive to our mindset either. 
In fact, Christ turns our world on its ear because he is talking here about going into an interior relationship with him with an interior uh, renovation scheme from the, uh, the Lord uh, himself. And he is giving us the opposites of what we are, we are accustomed to think. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to go back and give background. I want you to turn to Genesis 3. What is the kingdom of heaven? And how is it that the poor in spirit are the ones that inherit such a realm? The background for this is, you all are all familiar with this. In Genesis 3, this is where uh, Eve and then Adam eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Prior to that, uh, Adam and, in some ways Eve, but predominantly Adam, had been given authority over the planet to name the animals, to name the plants, to subdue the earth. Uh, when you, when you uh, read this statement um, of God where he blessed, verse 28 of chapter 1 of Genesis, God blessed man, uh, created uh, male and female, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. He was not just telling them to go run to and fro throughout the whole earth. He was saying, you are in authority over this earth. This earth is under your, is subjected to you. You can subdue the earth. You are in authority over it. And... Um, in Genesis 2, we see the unique creation of Adam and Eve. And Adam was created first, and Eve was created as a helpmate. Adam had more original authority in this subduing of the earth than Eve did. So when you see in Genesis 3, Eve eating of the uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, nothing changed on earth until... Adam joined her in the eating of that fruit. And when Adam joined her in the eating of that fruit, verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They covered themselves in fig leaves, and they began to hide from God. Now, not only did something radically change in their nature, what this represents is, is a dramatic change in the nature of man. Their nature immediately changed. Not just how they saw. How they saw was anchored in their nature. So the nature of Adam and Eve, of mankind, radically changed here in this moment. They saw themselves differently. They saw God differently. They saw each other differently. But the nature of the entire planet changed as well. In that one act completed by Adam, who was over in authority over the entire planet. Um, over here in, in verse 
well, let's start with verse 17 as a lead-in in chapter 3. And unto Adam he said, Because you have hearkened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying that you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. The nature of the planet changed. The ground was cursed. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth. And you shall eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and unto dust shall you return. So in that moment in which the one who was in authority over the whole planet ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there was a cataclysmic shift of planet Earth from what was light and perfect and pure and holy and peaceful shifted over to a realm of darkness and pain and suffering and where work becomes a toilsome thing and where the laws of, of biology, the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, the laws of nature itself changed. The laws of genetics changed because all of this then became inherited, uh, both of plants and animals and of man. Sin became an inherited item. It's passed on to us now. What was happening then? Because Adam was in authority over the whole earth, what he did affected the entire planet. Now, those two trees in the middle of the garden could take several lessons to talk about. But I think what you can, you can distill them down in, in one way to understand is that the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil were two spiritual trees. They were not regular trees. And they seemed to govern the running of the spiritual universe in a way we can't really comprehend. So I think in some ways you can understand the tree of life as representing the kingdom of life. The kingdom of light. The kingdom of God. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil is representing the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death. The one, the tree of life representing the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And the other tree of knowledge of good and evil representing the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of hell in a sense. Because they were choices to be made even by mankind because we've been created with free will. And that's we're, we're created with free will because that comes out of the nature of God. His, all of his creation is consistent with his nature because creation itself has come out of his nature. And his nature demands that his, those who worship him and those who, who follow him do so of their own consent. And so we, we begin to get a little crack in the window here of why faith is the only way back to God. Because man, Adam, in authority over the whole earth by his consent, bought into the tree of knowledge of good and evil and shifted from one kingdom to another kingdom. And not only did he shift, but he brought the whole planet with him. And so you see, particularly in John and in, in Corinthians, you see Christ describing Satan as the prince of the darkness of this world. And the hour of the darkness has come. And the prince of the darkness of this world has his, this is his hour. So, 
immediately it shifted underneath the authority by Adam's consent. He and the planet that went with him came under the authority of the prince of this world. Not the king anymore, the prince, Satan. And so we are in a darkened realm. And there is a king that we will return to, this planet will return to one day. But for right now, the spiritual authority over this planet is Satan. And how did that happen? By man's consent. And because it's an authority issue, and we're dealing immediately here, he's saying, we're dealing with the kingdom of heaven here. Now, I'm showing you how to return to the kingdom from which you have fallen, from which you have, have originally uh, chosen otherwise. And the way we come back is by our consent. And it just makes faith very simple. Faith is the only way. If I, if I come to accept Christ as my Lord and my Savior, I am giving consent to his kingdom authority in my life. I am giving consent. So faith is the act of consent. Because we are dealing with two kingdoms here, Christ reclaims patches of this world by the consent of the believer. When I come into a believing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, he has reclaimed on this darkened orb a patch of his turf. So you have the believers as a light. Y'all have seen uh, pictures of, the, uh, I imagine, of the earth at nighttime from space and all the amazing lights that rim particularly the coastal areas of the, of the, the world where the large cities are. Picture that as Christians. We are a light on the hill. We are a city without the bushel basket over the light so that we let our light so shine among men that they may see our good works and glorify God. We are children, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, children of the light, not of night. So whenever there's a person here on this darkened planet that accepts Christ as their Savior, a light shines. Because the kingdom of heaven has come to this planet as an outpost of faith in the heart of a consenting believer. And that's how his kingdom reestablishes itself, is by the consent of one who believes. Who says, I choose you. Adam chose otherwise. I choose you. I come back. I come back home. And so the light shines. And so in this darkened orb from a distance, you can see the cities of light. God's outpost of faith. How does that begin? It begins here with blessed are the poor in spirit. Turning back to Matthew. Matthew 3, I mean Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Yes. Sunday, I gave us a visual example of who 
Remember me. Remember me, and God said, you will be with me. Yeah. He was hanging in between the kingdom. <laughs> what, a what a visual. And in that moment, a light came. In that moment, in the spiritual realm, if you, if you step back, you would see the darkened world, and you would see a light come on, just in that moment, hanging between heaven and hell. And it was one Excellent. It was yes. Yeah, we do. Because it's kingdom. Authority is everything in a kingdom. Authority is everything in a government. The Secretary of State doesn't go and visit uh, you know, Italy uh, to talk about his or her own issues. The Secretary of State is going representing the nation, representing the kingdom, and has the kingdom authority. And we get that authority by our consent. That's a wonderful visual, Patty, of the thief on the cross hanging there between the two realms. He, poor in spirit because he recognized his need. He recognized his need. Yes. Yes. And that's all it took. So in a person's dying breath, if they recognize it and they say, Lord, come, they're there. It's consent that instantly shifts us over, otherwise known as faith. But he will not force us, just as he did not force Adam to make his choice. He did not prevent Adam from making that choice either. And so, yes, Patty, I love that picture. It's an amazing picture. But the poor in spirit are those who recognize their need, and the great danger here in being American in America is that we can sometimes feel needless. We have it all. We have nice homes, and, and even if we're struggling financially, if you, you compare us to Bangladesh, to the rest of the world, yes, the poorest among us are opulent compared with the rest of the world. And so wealth is measured not by the standard of the, or the status of the neighbor or the person who lives down the street. It, it's measured by the standard of the world. So we have so much, and that really is to our spiritual detriment. You and I have to fight against the riches and the pleasures of this world because they are all in our face here in America. And, and where we finally kind of come up to our need is if the stock market crashes and we lose, you know, 80%. We still have 20% left, but it still feels like a crisis to us. <laughs> or if our health fails, or the health of a loved one fails, or there is a death of a strategic person in our lives. That's where you and I here in America will most likely come up against. Uh, our need. But what he's talking about here is creating within ourselves, carrying within myself an attitude and awareness of my perpetual need. 
that doesn't rest upon my health, it doesn't rest upon my wealth, it doesn't rest upon uh, well-being in any way, shape, or form. It rests rest upon an abiding understanding that but for the grace of God, I would perish. And that is totally outside of my control except for me to choose. And that he has saved me by the broken body and the shed blood of Christ Jesus. What a great price he has paid for something that is free for me. Because they, they know. <clears throat> it's clear to them. They are poor in spirit. Their spirit is humbled. In Matthew 18, 1 through 4, uh, we see this as a key to the kingdom. Uh, where Jesus says um, in chapter 18, <coughs> Verily I say unto you, <coughs> except you be converted, and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whoso therefore shall humble himself, as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso receives one such little child in my name receives me. See, we cannot enter into heaven, and heaven cannot enter into 